Does your understanding of Christianity include suffering? Uh, let me be a little more precise. Does your understanding of Christianity include suffering for Jesus Christ? Many take up the religion of Christ without a view to suffering for Christ. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, just a few verses later, Jesus said, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Reflecting on these words from Jesus, Charles Spurgeon once said this, If persecution should arise, you must be willing to part with all that you possess, with your liberty, with your life itself, for Christ, or you cannot be his disciple. Today in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42, we see Jesus' first disciples take up their cross and following Jesus in the footsteps of suffering. They suffer because they treasure Jesus above everything. And they teach that Jesus is life itself and that life is found in him. And it's my prayer that as we study God's word together this morning and see in it the sufferings of Jesus' apostles, that we would come to see what the apostles saw. That Jesus suffered far worse for me and my sins than I could ever suffer for him. And that because Jesus has been raised from the grave, the sufferings at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you and invite you to open your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 913. As many of you know, the, in the book of Acts, Luke, the author of Acts, he wants to continue to recount uh, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to recount the risen and reigning ministry of Jesus through his apostles on earth. In our study so far, we've seen the uh, apostles boldly preach the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen the, the vibrant life of the early church in Jerusalem. In, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus prepared his disciples to receive power from the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be empowered to be Jesus' witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and extending out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, that, that program that Jesus announced in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that program that Jesus announced, it continues to carry on. So Peter preaches an amazing sermon at Pentecost. Many are saved and believed and the church begins to be built. We see the life of the church growing and apostles preaching in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And that's what we have been looking at together. And in fact, uh, the, the apostles were preaching. And on one occasion in Acts chapter 4, they were arrested and then released. And the life of the church continues to grow and abound. We see unity and generosity. as The church is sharing their possessions generously. Uh, and then uh, a couple pretending to be pious... Uh, pretends that they're giving their whole, the whole sale of their land, the whole proceeds from the sale of their land. And in this act of hypocrisy, the Lord judges it and makes clear that the purity of His church is necessary for the proclamation of His name. And that's where we left off 
last week, or two weeks ago, as we looked at Acts chapter 5, or at the end of verse 11. But picking up in chapter 12, uh, through verses 42, sorry, chapter 5, verses 12 through 42 today, we see that Christians, they so treasure the Lord Jesus that they gather together. And they stand and they speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they suffer for the joy of their souls. That's what our passage is about this morning. That Christians so treasure, treasure Jesus that they gather together for the glory of God. They stand and boldly speak for Jesus. And that they obey God above men and suffer for the joy of their souls. So in Acts chapter 5 verses 12 through 16 we see the church gathers for God's glory. In verses 17 to 26 the apostles they stand and speak for Jesus' honor. And in verses 27 to 42, we see the apostles obeying God and yet finding their joy in suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. So three points before the outline of the rest of the sermon together this morning. One, gather for God's glory. This is what you should do. You should gather for God's glory. Number two, you should stand and speak for Jesus. And number three, you should obey God and suffer for the joy of your soul. Well, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, gather for God's glory. Take a look at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Follow along now as I read. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Well, these verses, they chronicle the remarkable ministry of the apostles and the vibrant life of the church. It's another summary statement that we get from Luke in the book of Acts. He gave one in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. He gave another one in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. And he's giving another one now. From time to time, Luke likes to stop and kind of give us a summary of the situation on the ground. And that's what we're getting here. And what is clear is that people gather to the apostles to benefit from their word and deed ministry. That's what we're seeing here. People are gathering to the apostles to benefit from their word and deed ministry. And in fact, their ministry... Uh, Luke, in their ministry, Luke continues to show how the risen and reigning Jesus is working through his authorized representatives. The apostles are performing these kinds of signs and wonders that Jesus himself actually performed in his ministry. It's an echo of Jesus' ministry. So uh, think about the apostles' ministry here and listen to what Mark says in Mark chapter 1, verse 32 to 34 about Jesus' ministry. He says, that evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick, or oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases. Just a, a chapter later, chapter two, two chapters later, in Mark chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, we read this about Jesus' ministry. When the crowd, when, when the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. He had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Though in the book of Acts, though now Jesus is reigning in heaven, having been exalted from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is still displaying his power through the apostles, through his chosen representatives. And you'll notice that some in verse 15, some people are even trying to just have Peter's shadow fall on them as he, as he walks 
through the streets. I don't know if that reminds you of anything. It reminds me of that uh, time that the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years in the Gospel of Mark uh, tries just to touch Jesus, his garment, so that she might be healed. As something similar seems to be happening with the apostles' ministry and even Peter's shadow here. And this is actually simply what Jesus said would happen in the apostles' ministry. So in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So these apostles, they're carrying out similar works that Jesus done. But what's happening is Jesus is showing his power through them. Now, we, we need to understand that this activity is not normative in the life of the church today. Now, we don't have apostles because uh, those who, the apostles are those who were directly and immediately commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They were those who saw Jesus face to face and he commissioned them for ministry. Now, these signs and wonders were also given for the authentication of their ministry and message concerning Jesus. These signs were given to confirm their testimony that Jesus had been raised from the grave. Jesus has been raised from the grave and there's this sign that proves, yes, that same resurrection power is at work here among God's people as the apostles are performing these signs. These signs were given to confirm their testimony. And if you'd flip back to Acts chapter 4, verse 29, you'll see that this is one of the things that the apostles themselves recognized. They recognized that God was doing these works through them. So they're, they're praying, and now, Lord, look upon your... Uh, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal. So the apostles recognize that it's God doing this healing in and through them. None of us here today have been immediately commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle. So we shouldn't expect these signs and wonders to be emerging in our lives. Nevertheless, God is still pleased to work through us. And God works through us as we gather to hear the apostolic message about Jesus. God works through us as we gather people to the apostolic message about Jesus. And gathering is an emphasis that we have here in these first few verses of our text. Take a look at the tail end of verse 12 where Luke says, And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's not just a reference to the twelve apostles. That's a reference to the whole church in Jerusalem. They were in this place, Solomon's portico. It's roughly maybe some uh, five football fields long. It's a large space that could have thousands of people gathering in. At a bare minimum, the church at this point is about 5,000 people, maybe even up to to 15,000. What's interesting as well is that this togetherness, it not only has uh, physical connotations, but it has uh, mental connotations as well. This church is of the same mind. Uh, They're they're gathered together both physically and spiritually and uh, mindfully. Uh, This is remarkable uh, for this gathering of at least 5,000 people, if not more. And what's interesting is that this gathering, it repels some, it receives respect from others, and it's rising in number. Did you notice that? Uh, This gathering repels. You see that in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. Uh, Some people had heard about the death of Ananias and Sapphira when they had lied. They they heard about the pursuit of holiness that this church in Jerusalem had and that God enjoins upon His church. They heard about how these Christians were committed to the resurrected Jesus and that they were in dead earnest about turning from their sins and trusting in a crucified Messiah. They didn't dare mess with a God who demands everything from them. 
this gathering, it repelled many. And I wonder if some of you have been repelled by this gathering. I'm sure you're, you're, you're turning up with us here. You're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe you're afraid to join in fully with this church family. Maybe you're hesitant because you're ashamed of your sins. And you don't feel holy. You're, you're worried that you might have to confess your sins. Yes, as a church family, we, we do try to pursue holiness. But friends, what you need to know is that the members of this church, they are sinners too. They are in need of the Savior. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we often have a prayer of confession in our services because we've sinned this past week multiple times. And we need to confess our sins. We too are ashamed of our sins. And that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to join together, gather together. Joining this church family means that we confess our sins to God and to one another. And that we help each other turn away from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Friend, if you have not joined this church because you're repelled by the holiness that we're trying to pursue, and I think you're perhaps thinking about Christianity all wrong. You're not supposed to get your life all cleaned up before coming to Christ and joining His people. You turn your sins over to Jesus to be washed in His blood, and you join His people. Uh, you need help in pursuing holiness. You need to join so that you can get that help. You need help, and you need to help others too. Yes, you will have to leave your sins behind, but you can join and help me and others leave our sins behind too. The only reason to be repelled by this gathering is if you want to hold on to your sins. The only reason to be repelled by this gathering is if you want to hold on to your sins. But friend, you know that you really don't want to do that because it brings you no blessing and no joy. Don't let this gathering repel you. Come to Christ and join His people in the pursuit of holiness, all depending upon His grace and forgiveness. This gathering, you'll notice in our text, it also receives Respect. These Christians were held in high esteem for their commitment to Christ. These Christians were held in high esteem for their visible generosity. They were held in high esteem for their astounding unity. Uh, they were serious and they were servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were held in esteem for this. This gathering repelled some. It re received respect from others. And it received new converts that the Lord God was adding to their number. This gathering received more believers than ever, the text says. They received multitudes of men and women into their church family. And while on the one hand they were repulsive, on the other hand they were attractive, weren't they? Perhaps that's because of how they were merciful to those in need. Do you see how they were gathering those in need to the ministry of the apostles? The, the Christians were, they were ones who brought the needy to the apostles. They had received mercy from Jesus and they wanted others to know His mercy too. Soon this gathering expanded with people coming from different places around Jerusalem. And that's a key feature to understand about gathering itself. Gathering, according to the consciousness of the New Testament, is leaving one place and going to a place where others are. I've said this a half dozen times and I'll say it again. You cannot gather with God's people by staying where you are. You must leave your place and go to where God's people are gathered. You cannot sit in your chair at home you cannot stare at a computer filled with other faces and call that gathering with God's people. Just like the Christians in Jerusalem left their homes in Jerusalem and gathered in Solomon's portico, so we, 
if we are to obey God's commands to gather with his people, must leave our apartments and our homes and go and meet with God's people at a particular place. And you have all been obedient to the command of the Lord this morning. Praise the Lord for that. The church in Jerusalem, they gathered for the glory of God. And you have done something that brings God glory this morning. They gathered, the church in Jerusalem, they gathered to hear the apostles' teaching in Solomon's portico. And they helped others gather to the apostles' ministry too. Let me just offer two points of application and one point for prayer. Application number one, gather with God's people. Now, I know that seems obvious, and you think, I've done that this week. Yes, but Satan will be after you next week. He will be after you this afternoon, and he will do everything he can to discourage you from gathering with God's people. Don't let him do it. You need to hear it again, and you need to gather again, should the Lord Jesus tarry. Do not forsake the gathering of God's people. It's where the apostolic ministry of God's word of singing, reading, hearing, preaching, proclaiming continues. Gather with God's people, no matter how risky it is to your health or your reputation. Gather with God's people, whether or not people are repelled by it or respect you for it. The response of other people is not the reason we gather. We gather because God is worthy of our worship. As Psalm 63.3 says, Because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life, my lips will praise you. Application number one, gather with God's people. Application number two, bring the sick and the sorrowing to the gathering of God's people. Bring the sick and the sorrowing to the gathering of God's people. And I mean that both physically and spiritually. As we can help brothers and sisters who are sick and in need, physically broken, we want to help them gather with God's people. Right? They, they may have ailments. They may need help with a, a, a wheelchair or a walker or a cane. We, we might need to give them a ride. Let's bring these brothers and sisters to gather with God's people. And there are so many sick around us. In fact, every person you meet on this earth who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are sick with sin and they will die with that disease unless we bring them in to come and hear the news that Christ has given his life for their sins. Every unconverted person, Christian, that you meet on this earth is sick with sin. And they need to hear about the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be able to heal them bodily. The Lord may not choose to do that. But Jesus offers spiritual healing. And we offer him to others. But we should be that kind of crazy person in the office. Those crazy Jesus people who are constantly inviting others to gather for the worship of Jesus Christ. Become that person in your workplace or in your neighborhood that behind your back people will say, look out for John. He's always inviting people to go to church with him. And he won't quit until they actually do. You want to be that person who invites people to come and hear that Jesus is Savior and Lord and can set them free from their sins. Now, one point of prayer. Pray that God in His might and mercy would miraculously convert multitudes of men and women through our church family and witness. Members of ABC, put this on your prayer list. Pray that God would give you a heart to rearrange sometimes your schedule. The schedule of your life. That when a, a visitor comes in and hears about the Lord Jesus Christ and shows interest, that you are ready to change your schedule to meet with them, to read the Bible and pray with them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that the Lord would use you to see someone converted. Pray that you would have the desire and the delight to show them the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray for God to miraculously convert multitudes in our midst and add more believers than ever to our church family. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for this. Let's 
push, as one brother in this conversation, uh, congregation taught me. Push stands for P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. Let's pray until some people are converted and not give up praying. Let's pray that God would gather and save and add more believers to our church family than ever. Well, if Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, exhorts us to gather for God's glory, then Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, exhorts us to stand and speak for Jesus. That's our second point. Stand and speak for Jesus. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senators of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them. But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Well, if this scene feels familiar, then uh, you're probably remembering the early part of Acts chapter 4, where the Jewish religious leaders arrested Peter and John for preaching the resurrection in Jesus. But now they arrest all of the apostles. Here we find the religious leaders, and especially the high priests, jealous of what God is doing through the apostles. And this leads, of course, to their arrest. It's not surprising, really, that the high priest is jealous. This is a large and growing movement. It is human nature to want to be a part of, even be the leader of, a large and growing movement. And this movement is not just growing in number, right? It's growing in the estimation of the people of the city. Top it all off, this movement would make the office of high priest and that council obsolete. It, the councils, the need for a council would, would come to an end, right? If, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really did come to offer the sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, if Jesus really did appoint the apostles to be the new leaders of God's people, if Jesus, if all of this really happened in Jesus, then the high priest and the council, well, they're done. It's not at all surprising the high priest was jealous and he thinks it's time for me to stand up and do something about it. And that's just the thing. These verses, they have this theme of standing running right through them. You see it in verses 17, 20, 23, and 25. Take a look at verse 17. We're told that the high priest rose up, or literally stood up. And then when the angel of the Lord breaks the apostles out of prison there in verse 20, he tells them to go and stand in the temple and to speak to the people. And then in verse 23, when the report comes back to the Jewish religious leaders that they were told that the guards were standing at the door, but no one was inside. And then finally, in the climax of this scene, we're told there in verse 25, that the apostles were standing in the temple and teaching the people. Everyone is taking a stand. And this scene, it is tense, and it's also terribly funny. I mean, 
it's comical that the Jewish religious leaders thought that they could imprison the message about Jesus by imprisoning the messengers. That didn't work earlier with Peter and John. They're right back at it. This never works in God's economy. Even when Paul gets thrown into prison, he effectively says in his letter to the church of Philippi, though I am bound, the word of God is not bound. He says, what, what happened to me really served to advance the gospel. Imprisoning the apostles is really only going to make matters worse for the Jewish religious leaders. That's not the only comical thing about these verses. The, the guards are standing at an empty prison cell, and they seem to have no idea. Right? The cell was securely locked. What, what's the use of a securely locked cell with nobody inside it? They were told that in verse 23. How are 12 guys so easily lost? Uh, what's the use of, of this standing out front? It's also comic, comical, too, that the guards sheepishly right, and fearfully kind of come and arrest the apostles again. Uh, they don't do it in a bold and brash way. We're told there in verse 26 that when the apostles were brought back to the council, it wasn't by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Those in charge, those in power, don't seem to have as much power as they think they do. But what's most amazing to me in these verses, and really the center of them all, is the boldness of the apostles to return to the scene of the crime, so to speak. They return to the place where they were arrested, and they return to doing what they were arrested for. The apostles, they obey the angel of the Lord's instructions to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You know, they, they, they could have returned to their homes and kind of laid low. They could have probably returned to the temple itself and remained silent. Right? If they stopped witnessing and brought the Jesus movement to an end, then the high priest probably would have rejoiced and left them alone. But the apostles didn't just return to the scene of the crime. They returned to proclaim Jesus. They returned to the high priest's turf, right? The temple grounds were where the high priest had jurisdiction and territory. And at this point, the apostles weren't just kind of encroaching. They were basically taking over. And you know that phrase, this life, in verse 20? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's really just a summary of the message of Jesus. And when you think about Jesus, everything about Jesus pulses with life, doesn't it? Right? Jesus is the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. Where sin has brought death into the world, Jesus has brought life, life eternal. Brothers and sisters, as we go about proclaiming Jesus, let's proclaim the life found in him. There are crucial elements to the gospel message, and one of them is life. One of the crucial elements about the good news of Jesus is life found in him. Jesus lived the life that we've not lived, the life free of sin. Jesus laid down his life on the cross, and he died for us. And on the third day, Jesus was raised up from the grave in true and glorious life. And Jesus offers eternal life to all those who would turn from their sins and entrust their lives to him. Yes, let's hold out Jesus and offer life as we proclaim him. Brothers and sisters, let us stand and speak for Jesus. Let us proclaim his life. And perhaps sometimes we should even return to the place and the people who rejected the message before. Maybe you've had a gospel conversation and you kind of got shut down. Right? You were trying to tell your friend or your family member or your coworker about Jesus, but they, they silenced you. Maybe you're discouraged by that interaction. Maybe you should pray for God to give you wisdom and grace to return to the scene, to return to the person who shut you down and ask God to open their heart, to give you boldness, wisdom, and winsomeness 
to speak of Jesus' life. And that they would receive Jesus' life given on their behalf. You know, we should be sober-minded about these verses too. They don't promise us a prison break. Uh, They don't promise us necessarily escaping suffering and difficulty in conversations with friends or family members or co-workers. They don't promise us proclamation free from opposition. But they do encourage us to be persistent, to stand and speak for Jesus. And I'm so encouraged by a number of the conversations some of you have had recently, even just this past week or two. I know that many of you have been faithful to share Jesus' life with your family members, your, your co-workers, and your friends. And I know that some of you were shut down in those conversations. And I know that that hurts, and I know that that's concerning. And I'm so grateful for your prayerfulness in response uh, to that hurt, for your patience in waiting for God to open a new door and to perhaps to renew a conversation, and for your persistent love for Jesus and others. Brothers and sisters, I think that you've honored the Lord by standing and speaking for Jesus. When you share Jesus' life, you are not doing anything wrong. You are doing something that is blessed and beautiful in the sight of God. So, like the apostles, stand and speak for Jesus. As we'll see in the remaining verses of our text, obedience will sometimes bring suffering. But such obedience will also bring joy. So here's the the third exhortation of our text. Obey God and suffer for the joy of your soul. Obey God and suffer for the joy of your soul. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew some of the people away, uh, drew some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, those words there at the end of verse 42, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, are what these verses are about from beginning to end. If Jesus is the Christ, then he will be obeyed. If Jesus is the leader, the royal king and savior, then he will be obeyed. These verses are about the apostles obediently teaching uh, that Jesus is the Christ and suffering for their obedience. These verses begin, of course, with the charges against the apostles. There are three charges. If you can find them there in verses 27 and 28, the first charge is that of disobedience, right? The, The council has already told Peter and John that they were not to teach in this name. And notice that they can't even bring themselves to say Jesus' name. They just refer to this name very disdainfully. That's the first charge. They, have, they haven't obeyed. The second charge is that of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. And from the perspective of the council, that's, that's false teaching, right? Thousands are gathering to hear the apostles' teaching. And not just from Jerusalem, right? But also, people are coming in from the surrounding areas as well. And the third charge is that the apostles have wrongly accused the council of being responsible for Jesus' death. You see there they say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Over and over again in the book of Acts, the apostles have said that the Jewish religious leaders, along with the Romans, were responsible for Jesus' death. And they were not wrong to say it. To use the language of the cool kids these days, we have the receipts. Um, Perhaps you remember the scene of Pilate Facing the angry crowd, they're crying, crucify him, crucify him, that the Jewish religious leaders actually had stirred up. They were the ones who had stirred up the crowd to call for Jesus' crucifixion. And symbolically, Pilate, he washed his hands and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And do you remember what the crowd shouted back? They said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. If only this council had taken Jesus' blood upon themselves. If only they had believed that Jesus' blood made atonement from their sins. If only they would take Jesus' blood upon themselves. Yes, his blood is on their hands. They called for Jesus' crucifixion. In verses 29 to 32, we hear the apostles' defense. At the end of the day, they recognize the issue. At the bottom is this. Who is in charge? Who is to be obeyed? Yes, they have disobeyed the council, but that's what obedience to God required of them. And and I use that word required deliberately. They had to disobey the authorities because the supreme authority, God, gave them different orders. And notice the necessity of verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. It was the apostles' divine duty to teach that Jesus is the Christ. Not only were they commissioned by Jesus for being his witnesses, as Acts chapter 1 verse 8 makes clear, but the angel of the Lord who broke them out of prison commanded them to go and teach that Jesus is the Messiah. It was necessary. There was a moral obligation for the apostles to obey God and preach Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, this will occur and emerge in our lives. Should the Lord Jesus tarry, We will have to make these kinds of decisions where we obey God rather than men. There will be times where we will have to obey God over and above men. There will be times when our obedience to God necessarily means that we must disobey various earthly authorities. If you're uncertain as to when disobedience to earthly authorities is appropriate, 
and authorized by God, then I commend to you Article 17 of our church's statement of faith and this careful conclusion by John Stott. Go back and read Article 17 of our church's statement of faith later this afternoon on civil government. But listen to what John Stott writes on this matter. He writes, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and generally speaking, to submit to human authorities. But if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what God forbids or forbid what God commands, then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. Now note carefully that it is a Christian's duty to disobey earthly authority when that earthly authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. In verse 30, Peter, on behalf of the apostles, not only asserts their duty to obey God and therefore God's superior authority, but he also reasserts the council's responsibility in Jesus' crucifixion. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, raised Jesus up from the grave. But that is because you hung Jesus on a tree. And that phrase, you killed him by hanging him on a tree, is nearly a direct quote from Deuteronomy 21, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where we learn that a man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. The Apostle Paul will later explain in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus rescued and redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as he was hung on the tree. Peter is preaching the good news of Jesus to them. Just as it was necessary for Peter and the apostles to obey God, so it was also for Jesus, so also it was necessary for Jesus to be hung on a tree. Our salvation depends upon it. It was also necessary for God the Father to raise Jesus up and to exalt Him into His right hand as leader and Savior. Do you see those two terms there? Well, that term leader, it's often used in the Old Testament about the, the judges. So if you go back and read the book of the Judges in the Septuagint in Greek, uh, you would see this same term is used here. And, and what, what um, the idea is, is there's, there's royal authority to rule. That Jesus has been given this by God. Peter is telling these men that Jesus is in charge. He's telling these men that Jesus is the Savior who gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And here's the reality that Peter is bringing before these men and before us as we read God's Word. If they have any hope, if we have any hope of the forgiveness of our sins, it is only found in Jesus. As we submit to Him as leader, Lord, ruler, king, and as we trust in Him as the Savior who rescues us from sin. Peter is explaining that the apostles are God's authorized witnesses to these things. But so is the Holy Spirit. And in other words, the Holy Spirit inwardly witnesses to these truths in our hearts. And you know one implication of that point is that Peter is making to these men? It's that these men do not yet have the Holy Spirit. We know that because they are not yet obeying Jesus' call to come under His saving love. They are not yet bowing the knee to King Jesus as a leader and Savior. And as we're going to see in the book of Acts, some of them eventually do come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this message, it enrages them. Friend, do you, do you hear what Peter is saying? Are you bowing the knee to Jesus as leader, king, ruler in your life? Are you submitting to him and embracing all that he's offered to you 
in his life and death on the cross? Do you recognize that you will either bear God's eternal curse for your sins or that Jesus has borne the curse for you when he was killed by being hung on a tree? The Apostle Peter, the one preaching this sermon, he'll later say in a letter, in a letter that he wrote to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Friend, have you been healed by the wounds of Jesus Christ? A little later in that same letter, Peter will say this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's us. We're the unrighteous. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Oh, friends, turn from your sins. Repent and believe that Jesus lived for you. That he died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Embrace this good news. Don't be enraged by it like the council was. Do you see that in verse 33? There are only two responses to this good news in Jesus Christ. This good news of being told that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the Savior. You can either embrace this as joyful, glorious, wonderful news of life that saves you from eternal hell and the wrath of God. Or you can be enraged and angered by it. That was the council's response. Don't let that be your response. Jesus has offered his life for you. Receive him today. The council was so enraged that they wanted to kill the apostles. But Gamaliel, he calmed them down. You see, he's a well-respected Pharisee, we learn. And as we'll learn later in the book of Acts, he was uh, Saul of Tarsus' teacher. Saul of Tarsus, of course, will later be converted. And he'll take up ministry as the apostle Paul. Anyway, Gamaliel had a different approach than death with respect to how uh, the council was going to handle these apostles. Gamaliel took the patient but ultimately pragmatic approach. Right? He, he pointed back to history to support his thesis. Uh, Gamaliel believed that if this new messianic movement was of man, like the last few were, uh, then ultimately the movement was going to fizzle out. The leaders are going to die, and this movement, it's just, it's just going to go away. And that happened in Jewish history often. Uh, Gamaliel points to at least two cases. That's why he tells the councils really to step away from the apostles. It's interesting language. When Gamaliel tells the council to keep away from these men, in verse 38, he's actually using the word for apostasy. He's saying fall away from these men. And ironically, if the council did fall away from the apostles, they would be falling away from God and his messengers of his Messiah. It's awful counsel, actually. It's counsel from the pit of hell, telling them to get away from Jesus and his apostles. If this movement is indeed from God, they shouldn't just stop opposing it. They should actually support it. You can tell that the council only half-heartedly takes Gamaliel's advice. They don't actually step away from the apostles, right? They, They step toward them with whips and they beat them. In all likelihood... The apostles received the common uh, 40 lashes minus one. Typically, that punishment would include like a third of those lashes on the chest and two-thirds on the back. And so whenever the apostles from that day forward took their shirts off, uh, they would be men marked as lawbreakers and disobedient. But they were actually obedient to God, just as Jesus was. Right? Jesus was obedient to God the Father all the way to the point of death. And he received the lashes too, didn't he? And now the apostles and their bodies are 
sharing some of the same marks that their Savior bore before them. They were marked with the same suffering that Jesus endured to rescue and save them and us. You see, Jesus, He obeyed those fa- His Father and He was received with blows and the apostles. They obey God and they too are received with blows. And once again, the apostles, they were charged, released, charged not to speak in Jesus' name. And far from discouraging the apostles, this only served to further their joy and their eagerness to proclaim Christ. Look again at verses 41 and 42. Read those verses again. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Christian, do you think like that? Do you think to yourself, it would be my soul's delight to be counted worthy of suffering shame for the sake of the name? Do you think to yourself, I want nothing more than to identify with Jesus Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want that privilege, that honor. It would give my soul joy. It's hard to have such a desire for suffering these days. We live in a a cultural era of ease and luxury where almost everything about our context is opposed to suffering. But here's the bottom line of the matter. If we truly appreciate and grasp all that Jesus has done for us, we will do all for Him. We will welcome any and every opportunity to identify with Jesus in the fellowship of His sufferings. We welcome any and every opportunity to show, not just with our lips, but with our lives, that He is worthy of all suffering. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. We can drink the cup of man's wrath for Him. And the truth is, is in the book of Acts, often where there is persecution, the people of God multiply. Just look over at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... Right? There's this persecution, this oppression, and yet the church grows. It's often been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Reflecting upon the death of a fellow African bishop, uh, Bishop Festo uh, King Gravy, said, Without bleeding, the church fails to bless. And perhaps we can say it like this, the church will not bless until she bleeds. Are we ready to suffer for our Christ? Do we count him Worthy. It may just be God's will for us and our glorious joy to suffer shame for the sake of the name. And God may use this to further His kingdom. Christian, you may have to run into some opposition when you're sharing the gospel before you see converts added to God's church. That may be God's glorious calling for us. And so we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. We should obey God no matter the cost. In fact, It will be more costly to the joy of your soul not to obey God. It will be more costly to the joy of your soul not to obey God. Disobedience brings despondency, not delight. Yes, we must obey God. And that may mean that we must suffer too. Don't steal your own joy through disobedience. Don't steal your own joy through disobedience. Feed your joy through obedience to God rather than men. That's what the apostles went on to do. They kept on obeying. And they kept on obeying. They taught that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah that the Old Testament Scriptures promised. And they kept right on teaching. They kept teaching every 
day. They kept teaching in the same place that they were arrested, in every home that would give them welcome. Brothers and sisters, let us do the same. In fact, elders and men in this congregation who aspire to be elders do not grow weary of doing the same. Brothers, if you are given the opportunity to stand and speak for Christ at this gathering, at a Sunday school, or leading in prayer, don't pass it by. Take it up. Members of ABC, this is what elders want actually to be doing among you. We want to teach here, but we also would be delighted to teach you in your house. House to house. We're happy to go there. We've been delighted. I was in Sunday school uh, with the uh, elementary school kids this morning, and I told them, have your parents invite us to your home. If you have a question about God's word, some area, have your parents invite, invite the elders to come and speak to you about that in your home. It will be our joy to open the Bible, to read it with you, to talk with you about it, and to read scripture and pray with you. That's how we grow. That's how God has designed his church and his people to grow. Let, let us do these very things. Christian, be involved in this yourself. Teach the Bible from your very own home. Invite your neighbors to come to your home and do the same with them. Open your Bible. Read it to them and tell them that Jesus is the Christ and pray for them. I think that you'll end up blessing them and they might just be delighted, be delighted by that. And as we conclude, consider again that the Christians that we see in the pages of the New Testament, that they gather together to bring glory to God, that they stood and they spoke for Jesus and they obeyed God and suffered for the joy of their souls. And this is our calling too, to make Christ known. We are, in the words of Frank Houghton, facing a task unfinished. The work of telling others about Jesus is not done. And it's our privilege to go and tell others about him. Listen to these words from Frank Houghton's hymn on that subject. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know you, renew before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. Where other lords beside you hold their unhindered sway, where forces that defied you defy you still today, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light, unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and he rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. We yield to you our powers. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice, defend us. From lethargy, awake. Forth on your errands, send us to labor for your sake. Let us pray that God would send us to go and make Christ known. He is worth everything and all that we have and are. Let's pray together.